0: You're listening to the Irish Times
1: Worldview podcast. Welcome to Worldview, a special Irish Times podcast in the aftermath of the UK's Brexit vote. I'm Patrick Smith. On this podcast, Dennis Staunton, our London editor, looks at the vote and the profound shock it represents to the whole British political system. Amanda Ferguson reports from Belfast on the six counties' majority remain vote and its likely consequences. And from Brussels, our European correspondent Suzanne Lynch on how the vote is being seen there and what is coming next. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. In London this morning, David Cameron committed political harakiri. British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. I will do everything I can as Prime Minister to steady the ship over the coming weeks and months. But I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. Dennis Thornton in, in London. Last night was a truly shocking decision. The vote overwhelming. The polls again got it wrong. Well, what is going on? Uh, not
0: only did the polls get it wrong, but everybody got it wrong, including Nigel Farage, who conceded defeat uh, a few minutes after the polls closed. And, in fact, everybody practically on the Leave side thought they had lost and most people on the Remain side seemed to think that they had won. What seems to have happened is that uh, we all underestimated uh, the extent to which the Leave campaign had succeeded in neutralizing the central message of the Remain campaign, which was about the economic risks. And by branding all of these warnings as Project Fear effectively it uh, it succeeded in delegitimizing expert opinion and it didn't really matter who uh, was uh, offering the opinion you know whether it was an independent economic institute if it was the imf or the oecd they were all dismissed somehow as being part of a kind of a cabal of experts who were you know who were almost part of a conspiracy to frighten people and i think that uh, you know, it uh, we, we, you know, it's going to take us a while to really work out exactly what was going on in people's minds. Clearly, immigration was a major issue, but there was also a large element, I think, of a protest vote of people feeling as if. It didn't almost matter uh, what the cost was because they felt they had nothing to lose. That uh, they were, you know, that there was a system, whether it was European or just uh, the globalised system, or indeed the system within their own country, where they f- felt as if uh, it was operating for people other than them, and this and this was a good vehicle for them to uh, to make the protest. But I mean, uh, you know, the fact is it was a very high turnout, the highest uh, turnout in a nationwide. Election since uh, 1992, so there's no questioning the legitimacy of the mandate. It was a, it was a clear choice that the
1: people made. But you could map the uh, Leave vote with uh, social uh, disadvantage um, and and uh, um, it, parts of the country where, like the northeast, the northwest, where uh, they've suffered really quite badly economically in recent years, uh, the east coast, all of those. Um, strong, strongly votes showed that it was as much uh, a vote against... what we would call over here austerity, as as it was a vote against the European Union.
0: Yes, I think that's right. You know, you can certainly you can see in those places you mentioned, and also in parts of Wales, which also voted uh, voted uh, leave in large numbers. You can see these. Uh, there are a lot of the economically disappointed or uh, left behind, as as they're called. But of course, the other two big factors that tended to indicate what way people were voting were age and educational. Attainment so that uh, people, you know, the older people, did actually go out as expected to vote for Leave, and younger people among people aged between eighteen and twenty-four, seventy-five percent of those people voted to remain in the European Union. And likewise, and likewise, uh, you, know, it, you know, graduates tended to vote in favour of remaining. And people who uh, uh, who never went to uh, third-level education, they tended to vote to leave. So, there are all these divisions. So, I mean, I th- you, what you, you've been left with is a picture of a really starkly divided uh, country, not only on geographical lines or on economic lines, but also in terms of social class, education and age.
1: And, of course, there will be a, a reopening of the Scottish independence uh, uh, argument. Yes, because
0: uh, it's been, uh, it was always clear, as Nicola Sturgeon always said, that one of the arguments that was made during the Scottish independence referendum was that the only way that Scotland could remain within the European Union was if it remained within the United Kingdom. And uh, so she has always said that if uh, Scotland is removed from the European Union against its will, as she put it, uh, that that would be, uh, it could be a trigger for a second independence referendum. Uh, Now, it's not quite clear whether there would actually be majority support for uh, independence right now. But there is no question but that the uh, the fact that the Scots voted in substantial numbers in favour of uh, remaining in the European Union and yet uh, the UK is about to leave, it does change the uh, the nature of, uh, of the relationship between Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom. And so uh, Nicola Sturgeon is due to speak quite soon to talk about exactly what she feels the implications of the referendum random outcome
1: are. And of course it's a profound shock to to the entire political system over there already. We've seen Cameron announcing his departure. Does that mean that we're in for Boris Johnson as Prime Minister? Very possibly. Uh, Certainly when you
0: look at the uh, array of people who uh, who supported the leave camp i mean you've got this very uh, this extraordinary situation where uh, you have uh, uh, the people have uh, instructed parliament to um, and the government to withdraw from the european union and this is a parliament where the overwhelming majority are in favor of remaining within the European Union. So it's a very difficult uh, situation. And uh, and so we're going to have a, a leadership contest for the Conservative Party. The way it operates is that the parliamentary party produces two names. They, have, uh, they sort of whittle them down in a series of ballots to two. And those two names go to the broader membership in the country. And Boris Johnson at the moment is the favourite. But it's a rather devious and unpredictable electorate, the Conservative Parliamentary Party. So it's not, uh, I wouldn't uh, immediately bet whatever little money I have left after um, after Brexit on uh, on Boris just yet. But he is the favourite. Uh,
1: but, uh, but as you say, the transition has to be arranged by a government and a parliament uh, in majority opposed to, to this decision. Uh, that is going to be technically very difficult because apart from anything else there's a huge amount of legislation has to be amended by a parliament presumably not in sympathy with amending it.
0: Yes, and I think also I, I think it's probably important to consider that, despite all of the things that people are saying today, uh, hours after uh, the result, uh, where you have the victorious uh, vote Leave campaigners uh, effectively demanding that they should be able to implement their manifesto, uh, we are in a in a dynamic situation. So that what's happening in the markets, uh, you know, the realities are, you know, the economic and political realities uh, of the next few weeks will play out and they will have uh, an impact on the kind of deal that Britain is looking for, as well as the kind of deal that might be available to to Britain. And so, and also Parliament obviously is going to play a role within that because uh, any, uh, you know, as you say, there's a lot of legislation that has to be got through. There has been uh, some muttering about what people call a reverse Maastricht, if you can cast your mind back to the 1990s, when um, the rebels in the Conservative Party decided to thwart uh, John Major on every piece of European legislation that was introduced in Parliament, uh, forming little ad hoc alliances with the opposition, and you could see something like that happening. So, I think that, uh, you know, Parliament will be able to assert itself in terms of influencing the kind of deal that uh, the British government seeks, and what Parliament would, the majority in Parliament would seek, would be uh, a deal that would uh, retain access to the European single market. But, of course, what that means is that uh, you would also have to uh, continue to accept the free movement of people, which is very difficult uh, in the aftermath of a referendum where immigration was the main issue.
1: Thank you very much, Dennis. Suzanne Lynch, Europe is in shock. This has come as quite a bolt to the blue, quite bewildered, I would have thought.
2: Yes, um, it was a real sense of shock and disbelief that people have woken up this morning here in Brussels to the outcome of the referendum. Now, I watched the results coming in last night in some bars around the Schumann area, just near the European Commission headquarters. And the bars were full packed of, of British officials, British media, British expats who live and work here in Brussels. And really, there was an air of carnival ar- about the place. I, people did not see this coming. Um, there was a sense because of those polls that remain were going to win the day, but um, But that atmosphere has obviously dramatically changed now. So the European Union has woken up to a completely new reality. In one sense, we have had these rumblings of discontent before. We obviously had referendums in Ireland, in France, in the Netherlands, uh, but nothing to this scale. This is for the first time the European Union is faced uh, with um, the reality now that one of its largest members is now going to leave uh, the bloc.
1: And the interesting thing—it's it's perhaps an irony—is that this isn't really simply a, a British decision, uh, but but the culmination in some ways of a process of increasing political alienation throughout Europe. It, it's it's uh, it, it's something that is intensely European, in fact.
2: Absolutely, and I mean, looking trying to reflect on this this morning, and um, one thing that has occurred to me is two years ago with the European Parliament elections in May two thousand and fourteen, that was actually quite a landmark election. Eurosceptic parties topped the poll in countries like Denmark, in Britain, in France. And at the time here in Brussels and, and even in, in places like Ireland, I remember uh, speaking at a, an event in Ireland, people dismissed this and they made the point, oh, well, you know, most people are still voting for, for centrist parties, for um, mainstream pro-EU parties. But at the end of the day, the fact that Marine Le Pen in France, one of the founding members of the European Union, topped the poll in that election was a major warning, call, warning sign for the European Union. But people, I suppose, you know, put their head in the sand. there has been engulfed by crisis after crisis, the Eurozone crisis uh, and then the migration crisis and now faced with the first plebiscite, essentially, on membership, the, the European Union has failed to pass the test. Uh, it's come up uh, close and personal with its voters and the British voters have now decisively, with a, with a very big turnout, uh, voted to leave. So there's huge questions now for the European Union. In saying that, we've had the first official response this morning from the European Council President Donald Tusk, the Former Polish Prime Minister, a pretty pragmatic, uh, consensual kind of guy, who's already run run a, run a country in, in Poland, and but is a passionate pro-European, pro-eur- having come from from a former communist country, but he was quite clear. He said it was a it was a sad day that Europe wa- had wanted a different outcome, but he did insist that the project will continue, that the Europe of 27 will continue, and that at next week's summit, the 27 leaders without Britain will hold their own meeting at the fringes of the summit.
1: And, of course, uh, uh, other straws in the wind uh, included the Austrian presidential election just a matter of, of, of weeks ago when a, a far-right candidate very came very, very close to, to being elected. Um, in France, you've talked about the Netherlands. Even in Italy, Eurosceptic parties are going to see this as a green light to, to demand referendums themselves.
2: Yeah, this is a big fear now. Will other countries uh, call for referendums? Now, this morning, unsurprisingly, uh, Geert Wilders of the Dutch Freedom Party and Marine Le Pen have already called for referendums. Uh, but to an, ex- to an extent, that's not that surprising. We also have a general election in Spain on Monday, uh, which, which is an interesting uh, timing. Uh, and also in countries like Finland, the issue, the idea, notion of a referendum has, has uh, been discussed in the Czech Republic also. Uh, so that's going to be one of the major concerns going forward. Uh, with this. So, how European leaders respond to this, it's a delicate balance. They need to say, particularly for the financial markets, that the European project is still on track, that it still remains and it it will continue. But at the same time, it needs to show that it's listening uh, to the the beliefs and and questions of its voters, particularly uh, ahead of next year, because we have two very important elections both in France and in Germany. So, it's going to be a real uh, challenge for uh, EU leaders to try and strike a balance as they try to respond to this just simply huge news this morning.
1: And there was talk last night about an emergency council meeting uh, this weekend to discuss uh, stabilising the Mm. markets. Is, Is that going to happen?
2: Uh, What's likely to happen um, is that there are going to be a series of emergency meetings now over the weekend here in Brussels involving ambassadors for all the EU member states, uh, EU commissioners also. Um, One possibility, we we, we haven't been told of an extra EU summit. Um, The EU summit of EU leaders, which had actually been scheduled to take place this Thursday and Friday and had been moved forward to next week, that's uh, due to take place on Tuesday and Wednesday. No sign that that date has been changed. What may happen is that a Eurogroup meeting of finance ministers may be called perhaps on Sunday or Monday. Um, People were ready for turbulence on the markets on Friday, whatever way this vote fell. But they're more worried about the long term um, or the medium term, if you like, financial implications. So there's going to have to be some kind of a coordinated response uh, in train by Sunday evening before markets open on Monday. Um, But uh, as as Tusk has, has, has said this morning, this Article 50 now is going to be the real focus for people. That is the Article in the Lisbon Treaty that uh, covers uh, the scenario of an exit from the European Union. But it, it's, it's, it's quite short. It has about five um, paragraphs uh, and it, it's, uh, it sets out a two-year time frame. But it does say that that, that time frame can be extended if all EU member states wish wish so. So even though people are talking in terms of this two-year time frame, that could well be extended. Uh, nobody quite knows. But what will be a worry here, a source of tension over the next few days, will be the fact that David Cameron has already said this morning that he would like to invoke Article 50 once a new leader is in place. Other people in Brussels want to get that process going much quicker than that. So that is going to be a source of contention, without doubt, over the next few days.
1: And of course, critical to those discussions is going to be the question uh, which was at the centre of the, the, the British uh, campaign, and, th- and that is uh, immigration. And uh, whether it's possible to reach an agreement with Britain about access to European markets and at the same time restrict free, free uh, labour movement. Uh, that's mm-hmm. something very difficult for most member states.
2: Extremely, extremely. Um, And it's unclear whether the free movement issue, how much that is going to play into either the Article 50 negotiations or a kind of parallel trade negotiations, because I think they're the two main strands uh, of negotiations that that have emanated from this result. Now, Britain is going to negotiate some kind of of a deal with Europe on trade. We just don't know what kind of deal that's going to be. Now the Norwegian model has been mentioned. It's an obvious example of obvious precedent, uh, but it, it, it is not likely to be suitable for Britain, mainly because um, Norway has to accept free movement rules and also all those EU regulations that that Britain uh, is, is the Leave campaign was so opposed to, and yet have no role in shaping those. Um, Switzerland also has a has a trade deal with Britain, but that's a quite a complex uh, agreement based on a number of bilateral agreements, and in Brussels there is a reluctance to uh, embark on that kind of a trade agreement uh, with Britain. Um, other in the Leave campaign have talked about the WTO. I can't see that working um, because of the huge tariffs then that will, will most likely uh, be placed on, on British goods. So what we're essentially looking at really in a nutshell is some kind of bespoke relationship for Britain with the European Union in terms of trade but as you say, it is going to be fiendishly complex, uh, fiendishly technical and legalistic. Um, but that is going to be what they're going to try and get over the next couple of years.
1: Thank you very much, Suzanne. Uh, Amanda Ferguson in Belfast. Uh, the North, like Scotland, uh, voted by majority for Remain, but less strongly than expected. Where, where was the, the vote strongest uh, and weakest?
3: Well, um, of the 18 constituencies in the north, 11 voted for remain and seven um, uh, voted um, in favour of leave. Now, it seems to be predominantly unionist constituencies uh, that have gone for for the leave vote. Um, And that sort of was reflected in the message that uh, the First Minister, Arlene Foster, had put out that that will be the best uh, possible outcome for Northern Ireland and its place in the United Kingdom. So, Obviously, this morning, um, Mrs. Foster is extremely happy with the result, um, and nationalists and um, other parties that were, were campaigning for um, and in vote are, are, are less happy. Uh,
1: in terms of political reaction, the DUP can take some uh, pride in the success of the campaign. Uh, what are its people saying?
3: Yes, well, um, Arlene Foster has come out this morning and said that she's very pleased with the result, obviously. Um, the, the result in Northern Ireland was that um, the majority of people wanted to remain. Um, but um, she seems to think that the, the position of Northern Ireland is best served outside the EU. And she said to, this morning that she wants to be involved, um, as involved as much as, as possible in the exit negotiations.
1: And is she convinced that all the money that, say, the farmers are going to lose will be replaced by Westminster?
3: <laughs> Well, that is a consideration. You know, the the Ulster Farmers Union didn't take a position because farmers were so um, sort of uh, down the middle on whether they should remain. Obviously, 87% of farmers' income comes from the Common Agricultural Policy. Um, And and while that, you know, obviously is like the the vast majority of their income, many of them felt that they've got what they can out of Europe, there's too much bureaucracy. Um, And I know that uh, the fishing industry, um, you know, were vocalising their sort of uh, disquiet with the EU. So... Um, That's that's definitely something that's that's a consideration. But, you know, it's a a big leap into the the unknown at the moment. And I think that there's there's so much happening um, in in Britain that all of these factors will be considered at a later date. But um, Arlene Foster has said that she wants to to represent um, Northern Ireland's case as strongly as possible. But there is no guarantee that Westminster will uh, fund farmers to the same extent um, that, that, that the EU has.
1: Now, Sinn Féin was out campaigning in favour of, of Remain, uh, but I heard them explaining with some ambivalence about how nationalists perhaps weren't going to turn out in great great numbers. Their main point this morning, though, seems to be that the, the vote has reopened the question of United Ireland.
3: Yes, indeed. Um, Martin McGuinness was speaking this morning saying that... Um, you know the the British have no mandate here, and um, they can't represent uh, the interests of the people of the North. Um, and um, you know the, there's there's big sort of uh, questions to be asked ahead of time. And again, they call they call for for the border poll. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Because at this point, um, you know, Arlene Foster has said there's no um, there's no sort of um, circumstances that would would lead the Secretary of State. Um, to, to say that there is, uh, you know, a majority of people in favour of United Ireland at this point, um, so they're sort of seeming to, to be sort of uh, rubbishing that idea as, as, as irrelevant at this stage.
1: In a sense, though, if Scotland gets to vote again, uh, it'll be more difficult for her to resist.
3: Well, sir, it certainly does. It's been an interesting part of the campaign that the DUP um, were so so in favour of, um, you know, leaving the EU whenever all the signals were there that Nicola Sturgeon would call an independent vote in Scotland and it could trigger sort of the dismantling of the UK so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out in the, in the sort of weeks and months to come.
1: And we've been hearing during the course of the campaign great concern being expressed about new border posts up on the border, about impediments to trade, to free movement. Uh, what are the parties saying now about those realities and how are they going to approach those issues?
3: Well, the DUP is insisting that, that nothing will change. Um, you know, So many different parties are coming out and saying, you know, how how is it possible to have um, such a focus on the the sort of um, the the movement of people and and have this sort of border between effectively the EU and a state that isn't part of the EU? So um it'll be it'll be something it'll be something that they'll, they'll argue back and forward over the weeks to come but certainly um certainly last night at the at the client center sammy wilson you know said it was it was ridiculous to suggest that there would be sort of military posts or any sort of strong sanctions in place and that um it, it could all be worked out and everything could continue as normal but it, it would be difficult to imagine a circumstance where nothing would change but that's obviously for the parties to argue with the time to come.
1: And indeed the European Union. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Amanda Ferguson and Suzanne Lynch and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.